One of the most moving moments of worship for me is that experience that we have sometimes of singing together a hymn that is beloved and familiar. Now understand, I am often moved by hymns that are new to me, by hymns that have been updated, by hymns that might be expansive of our language of God and require us to sing with care and with careful attention. But I also love those moments when the music carries years of echoes from my life of faith. When I can clutch the hymnal to my chest because the words are so much a part of my vocabulary of belief. When the melody stays with me and it becomes a refrain that carries me out into the world. And when I scan the sanctuary and I can see that many of you are experiencing the very same thing. Well, Great is Thy Faithfulness is on that list of hymns for me. And it has become even more so in my time here as pastor of First Baptist Greensboro. When I sing it, I see your faces singing with me. I can hear the subtle nuances of Doug's piano accompaniment. And I imagine myself here in this place singing out words like, Thy compassions, they fail not. Or morning by morning, new mercies I see. And all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. And so as we approach the end of this church year, and as we together look toward a year that is ahead of us, as we consider in these days of stewardship and commitment just how we will respond to the faithfulness of God in the life and the ministry of our church and what we will plan to give of our own gifts in response to the many gifts of our God, well, part of what I closed my eyes and heard, part of what I clutched my chest and sang, part of what I imagined ingrained in the life of our church family is that refrain where we confess our belief that God gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And we can sing it by heart. We can close our eyes and we can profess that loudly, full-voiced, and in harmony together. And when we do, well, we are not resting primarily in the music. We are resting in our experience of the very faithfulness of God. And we need to rest in this. We need to sing this amidst the many concerns of our lives and amidst the many concerns that we share in the life of our church. This is a season in our church where our focus turns to things like budgets and buildings and the punch list of things that are ahead. And that can make us aware of the unique challenges for a church that was established and constructed in another place and time. First Baptist Greensboro is a church with 163 years of history. History of a congregation that has sought to respond to the Spirit of God, that morning by morning is bringing new mercy and making all things new. 163 years of history as a church that seeks to work in dynamic and adapting ways to hold an essential place in the health and the thriving and the wholeness of individual believers and in this wider community that surrounds us. But we are also a church that can recognize how at one time, this ministry happened in ways 
more natural. You can just consider our building as an example of this. Our building has been with us for 70 of these 163 years, and it was built in a time when so much about life in a community like Greensboro almost seemed to funnel people into a church like First Baptist. Leaders of our church, in fact, told the denominational architects, we like what you've done in some other churches that we know, but we need ours to be the biggest. And so it was. Now, I have a theory about this. I cannot prove it today, and I have not adequately tested it against our church historian, Dr. Scott Colclasher. Nonetheless, I am aware that just about 72, 73 years ago in the life of Greensboro was the time and the place of the Billy Graham Crusade. The Billy Graham Crusade that brought many people together and found many people converting to Christianity and then searching for new churches. And it happens that First Baptist Church of Greensboro was one of the primary churches that partnered with the Billy Graham team to help people find a place of belonging and growth and discipleship. In fact, those months following the Billy Graham crusade in Greensboro were the historically largest months of membership boom in the history of our church. I mean hundreds and hundreds of new members a month. And it was around that time that our church began to consider what, were, what sort of building do we need? What sort of sanctuary will house these people? And so I sometimes say colloquially that Billy Graham helped to build this First Baptist Church. In fact, a few weeks ago, I was standing on the front steps, the porch, after the funeral for beloved Saint Bill Walk. And two of Bill's nephews had been so moved by our sanctuary, by the openness, the light, the airiness that we all love, that invites us here, that helps us to feel the embrace of God. And they asked about the construction of this building. And I told them a little bit about my theory. And I mentioned the word Billy Graham. And Bill Walk's wife, Suzanne Walk, overheard. And she said, oh, you know, I joined this church right after the Billy Graham crusade. Well, anecdotes aside, and theories put away, we do know how this church was built in a time where what you needed in a church was a place not only to worship and study and grow, but also a place where people came for meals together, where people played basketball and went bowling, and where children came to school, and where we needed a library to provide people with books, and how many other functions that a church served at that time 70 years ago. And of course, we recognize how much has changed. Our needs have changed. Our understandings of God and salvation have changed. Our interpretation of what church is has changed, and certainly the external factors around us have changed. The times have changed. We know, for instance, that in this time and place, Christianity is not implicitly privileged. And while it is right and good that all faiths and religious backgrounds be regarded equally in our country that separates church and state, we also know how this presents some challenges. 
Because we also know that many who are Christian are not necessarily connected to a church. And that even for those who claim a commitment to a church, the patterns of activity and engagement have changed. This was already occurring, but it has rapidly accelerated since March of 2020. Just this fall, the Lilly Endowment released some findings in an ongoing study of how the pandemic in the months and years since have impacted congregational life. And across the board, traditional brick churches like ours, situated in a community with history and heritage, have experienced shifting patterns of attendance, of volunteer involvement, of contribution. The way that I have come to describe it, the way that we sometimes talk about it as a pastoral staff and leadership here, is that people simply have less church-centered lives. And that can sometimes leave us wringing our hands, longing for another time, lamenting our current place, pouring over the budgets, then back over them again and again, glancing at the punch list and feeling our worry rise. But then perhaps amidst all of that, we turn our head and we catch sight of Jesus. And maybe we tune our ears and we can hear him over there humming a tune about strength for today and sitting down in this field of wildflowers. Do not worry, Jesus says in our passage today. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. Well, this urging is part of Jesus' instructions on how to live a life. That segment of Matthew that is known as the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus lays forth what our practical behavior ought to be in this world, we ought to be counter to the patterns that are around us. We ought to live for a kingdom that can actually come to earth as it is in heaven. And so when Jesus says, don't worry, He means don't just do the reflexive thing, the natural response. Don't be like everybody else. Don't live like someone who doesn't know the love of God revealed in Christ. Don't live like those who hedge their bets and calculate all the contingencies as though there is no order beyond their own. Just think of what we've already heard him say in this passage in Matthew. He says things like, instead of hoarding money, Give it away. Instead of obsessing about yourself, turn outward. Care for others. Beyond your prudent planning for the cares of life, abandon yourself to a God who is both infinitely powerful and intimately personal. And so instead of paralysis because of the cares of the future, be inspired by the hope that the future is in the care of God and the coming of God's kingdom. Seek that above all else, in fact. Place all of your worry and stress within the wholeness of what you know about the kingdom of God. And if you need help with this, well then look around you, Jesus says. He scans the hillside before saying to us, consider the lilies. Sometimes I wish I had the view that Jesus' audience had. I've told you before about how when I was 13 years old, 
I had the chance to travel to Israel with my father and with a group from our church, Lakeside Baptist, and I can remember many things about it, including this traditional site of Jesus' sermon. And I can remember how on that hillside there are these rows of wildflowers, lilies, some might call them. I've done a little bit more research since then, and I've learned that some 250 species of wild lilies grow in and around Israel. And so staring out in that kind of open space, well, it must have been easy to consider the lilies. But don't forget, this was also a scene that was charged with all kinds of emotion, that was full of so many opportunities for distraction and plenty of concern and worry about the future. There they were, no more capable, no less flawed than any of us, some of them anxious, some of them greedy, some worried about the mundane and meaningless things, some convinced that their own lives were nothing more than mundane and meaningless, and some of them probably disillusioned about their present and uncertain, so uncertain, about just what the future held in following Jesus. And he stoops in front of them. He plucks this wildflower, he rolls it, thoughtfully between his thumb and his finger, and he says, look at this. Look at this. Do you know who made this? This fragile, tiny, lustrous thing. Look how the light illumines its veins. God made this. And didn't God make your lives? And how much larger are they? And how much more beautiful? And how much more illumined by the light? And won't God look after them even more than this flower? Consider the lilies, we say, but the Greek verb is even more than that. It means to observe closely, to study diligently. Look here, look here is actually a better translation. Hippocrates, the ancient Greek physician, used this term in the sense of learn something. Look at the lilies and let them teach you. Or look at anything in this world long enough to learn something from it. Linger so that it reminds you of the constant care of our God. And how often do we do that? Better yet, how many times do we fail to do that? How many reminders a day do we miss amidst our busyness and our stress? How often do we miss this in the life of our congregation, how often do we fail to look around at all the evidence of beauty and care, riveted as we are to other things? Look here. Look here, Jesus says. Consider that there is an order beyond you. As a friend of mine is fond of praying, Lord, help us to know that there is something going on above our heads. And are we able to see it? Do we have the ability to notice? Do we have the capacity for consideration? Have we placed our worries within all that we know about God's care and God's provision for each of us? Our faith invites us again and again to rest in this knowledge, to remember, to before we look forward, look back at what has been. If we had to pick a word of the moment since March 2020, I think mine would be the word that I hear used over and over, that this is a time that is somehow, quote, unprecedented, right? I was at a meeting just this week, and I heard an institutional leader use it, as I have many times before, and you have too. But I think we use it too freely, because our faith 
remembers even when we don't, remembers times of crisis and challenge and uncertainty and opportunity, and remembers the presence of God and the courage of God's people amidst such times. In Jewish tradition, this is known as the theological concept of salvation history. That is, that there is a wide, expansive history of God's redemptive action, and that the best evidence of what God is doing in the present and what God will yet do in the future is what God has already done in the past. How God created and called it good and beautiful. How God led people out of bondage and through the wilderness of their wandering. How God has before God's people always promise and possibility. And how when we have been unable to see it, unable to grasp it, unable to notice it and tune our lives to it, God has entered right into the midst to show us the way. And how God's people throughout have found within themselves capacities that they never could have discovered on their own. It's as the poet Wendell Berry has written a refrain in his poem, Wild Geese, which speaks an ancient truth of our faith. Berry writes, what we need is here. This has been at times a refrain for our pastoral staff and leadership when we approach challenges or uncertainties or questions, what we need is here. What we need is already here. It is here in the community that surrounds us, in the gifts that have been given to us, and most of all, in the God that calls each of us beloved and wondrous and beautiful. I think about something that the writer John Lex once said. Lex was a longtime professor and a poet in residence at a college in New York, and then he lived on a small farm in New York State. Well, he never found that there was enough time to do all the work on the farm, and at times the old orchard planted long ago by someone on a hillside would become neglected and overgrown. And one day John was driving through the carefully groomed orchards of central Ontario, and he found himself almost overwhelmed, even anxious by seeing all of these rows and rows, endless rows of well-ordered and groomed trees, and how that contrasted with his little orchard, so often overgrown. And he reflected on this feeling, and how yet somehow he felt at home in his poorly tended orchard. Well, why was that, he wondered. And it had to do, he finally concluded, with the way that a small orchard fits into the scheme of a larger creation with many people caring for their tiny plots of ground. Perhaps this is why, he says, though I feel my failure sometimes to bring the old orchard to fruitfulness, I feel no real guilt. Why, in fact, I feel a sort of pleasure because when I walk in it, when I walk in it, it tells me that a person's caring can only go so far. It tells me that my order is not the only order. And in this message, I feel comfort. In this message, I find peace. My order is not the only order. It's a comforting thought when things 
seem overgrown or overwhelmed, when the familiar seems distant and the stresses of today are so present and imposing, when our own lives seem so impossible to keep up with, much less keep up, my order is not the only order, not the ultimate order. To say it another way, or to sing it another way, thou changes not, thy compassions they fail not, and as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. In these weeks that bring us to the end of this church year and to the beginning of the next, so full of possibility and opportunity, let me encourage you, church, to be prayerful, to be deliberate, to join me in seriously considering how you can give the best of what you have to God in the year ahead. But before we do that, Indeed, before we make any vital, important decisions in our lives, I pray that we will do one more thing. I pray that we will turn our heads. That we will consider the lilies. And while we're at it, that we'll consider the God who comes near to us amidst any challenge. The God who tells us of treasure hidden in our own fields right within our reach. The God who could do all that was needed with mere loaves and fishes. The God of the yeast that was enough to leaven the whole batch. The God who once parted waters on the way to freedom with a common staff in the hands of a stammering leader the God of prophets throughout generations who find within themselves what is needed to amplify the message of God's justice and joy, the God of a willing young woman approached right in her home and invited to birth the Son of God into this world, who is the same God who in Jesus walked the streets of Nazareth, who sat on the hills outside Jerusalem looking at the flowers and the birds, who awoke amidst the raging storm to say, fear not amidst so much worry, and who finally made his way to Jerusalem to say to all of us so definitively that whatever it is that you are facing, you have me. Nothing can separate us, not a cross, nor a tomb, nor death itself. Lo, I am with you always, always, and may that truth be enough to give us strength for today and bright hope for all that is ahead. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.